If you would, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. We return to our study of the Gospel of Mark. The last time we were in Mark, we looked at five different events. The sending out of the twelve, the beheading of John the Baptist, Jesus taking the twelve aside for some rest, not getting it, the feeding of the 5,000, and then Jesus walking on the water. There's a lot there that I don't want to mention here, but there are two things by way of review that really stand out to me about these passages. First of all, Jesus took the 12 aside. They had been sent out on mission, and they come back, and they give a report, and he takes them aside for some rest. They're on a boat trying to get somewhere, but the crowd is following them along the shore. And then we read in chapter 6, verse 34, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Jesus here is marked by compassion. You might say, why? What brings this out? There are a lot of people. Well, because he sees that they are sheep without a shepherd. This is an Old Testament expression that we find first used by Moses as it is his time to die. He's concerned that Israel will not have a leader, and he prays that, in fact, God would appoint someone so that they would not be like sheep without a shepherd. But this is how Jesus sees the crowd in front of him, and his response to them is to teach them. I find that striking. It's probably not what we would think of in terms of compassion. Oh, I have compassion. Here, let me teach you something. Um, Doesn't always go together with us. Um, I think it means that our thinking needs to be corrected somewhat. And then the second thing that stood out to me, and we heard it in our prayer of confession, and that is the hardened hearts of the 12. Um, In verse number 52, well, 51 and 52, then he climbed into the boat with them. He was walking on the water and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. They see him walking on the water. They think he's a ghost. And they're afraid. And all of this happens after they'd been sent out on mission and they had healed people and cast out evil spirits. Jesus had just fed 5,000 men besides women and children. And there are leftovers. Um, And yet, in a real way, they are not essentially different from his opponents they failed to recognize his unique character. And they failed to see Jesus and his work within the context of the Old Testament. So as I mentioned, when we looked at this, think a moment. A lot of people in the wilderness don't have food to eat, and food is miraculously provided. Does this ring any bells with someone? I mean, is this not the story of Israel in the wilderness? The Lord had provided for Israel in the wilderness. Jesus had done so for the crowd in the wilderness. The disciples had actually seen it. They had participated. They had, they had distributed the food. And yet they don't get it. They don't get it. The same Lord rules the seas. They don't get it, at least not yet. Their hearts are hardened. We didn't finish chapter 6 last time, and so today, I actually read it, but now we'll look at it as sort of an introduction to what we will see in chapter 7. 
The feeding of the 5,000 took place in a remote location. We don't know exactly where it was. Jesus sends his disciples on ahead to Bethsaida, which is at the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, while he will dismiss the crowd. And you may, remem- you may remember that early on the disciples were like, send these people away. And he's like, no, you feed them. When everything is said and done after he feeds them, he sends the disciples away. And then he, on his own terms, dismisses the crowd. The disciples are having a hard time getting to Bethsaida because the wind is against them. Then they see Jesus walking on the water. He gets in the boat, the wind dies down. And they end up not in Bethsaida, where they had intended to go, but in Gennesaret, which is south of Capernaum. So instead of going north, they end up going south and west. The people recognize Jesus and they bring the sick to him. Look, if you would, in verse number 53. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. It's this last part that I want us to consider by way of review, and that is they, touched, they just wanted to touch his cloak and to be healed. We need to see this story in the light of something that happened earlier. That is the woman who had an issue of bleeding for 12 years. This is in chapter 5. She had spent all her money on doctors to no avail. So she had not only lost her health, she had also lost her wealth. And she had lost the possibility of human contact. Because Mosaic law says that if a woman has an issue of bleeding, anyone who touches, she's unclean, and whoever, whoever touches her is unclean. So nobody wants to be around this woman because she is someone who is unclean. But she has a plan. She thinks, if I can just touch the edge of his, his cloak, then in fact I could be healed. If I just touch his clothes, she says, I will be healed. Unless we think this is an act of desperation, or that she thinks that Jesus has miraculous or magical power, not miraculous, but magical power, Jesus, in fact, says it is an act of faith, that her faith had healed her. It is an amazing act of faith to think that merely touching his clothing would bring about the restoration of her health. By the way, I think she wanted to do this incognito because she didn't want people around her to know her condition. Um, she acted in faith and she was healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. That's not enough. Jesus noticed. It's like somebody touched me. Who touched my clothes? And people, the disciples, are you kidding? You're, You're surrounded by all these people. Of course a lot of people have touched you. But he knew exactly what had happened. It raises questions. Did Jesus' clothing have miraculous or magical power? I bring this up because that's what it seems to be at the end here of chapter 6, that whoever touched his clothing would, in fact, be healed. Um, 
No, his clothing didn't have magical power. He wants, in fact, for the woman to come forward. Did Jesus know what had happened? Absolutely. He did know what had happened. And what he does is, he doesn't say, you, lady, you touch me. He asks questions. And this is God's pattern throughout Scripture, beginning in the Garden of Eden, where he asks Adam, where are you? Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree? God knows the answers to all these things, and yet he asks questions. Look at the times in the Gospels that Jesus asks questions, and this is one of them. And the woman is revealed. He keeps looking around. He's not going to move until she comes forward. And she came forward, but she was afraid. She was trembling with fear, and she told him the whole truth. And then he said, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Be freed from your suffering. The woman, I think, wanted not, didn't want to be revealed uh, for her condition. I think she might have been also somewhat embarrassed that she had sort of snuck up on Jesus uh, to be healed. But Jesus wants her to complete the circle. We saw this when we looked at this. That is that there is trouble in our life. We call out to God and he answers us. And then we respond in gratitude. And not to say this woman wasn't grateful, but he wants her to make a conscious decision to say out loud what had happened to her and to give thanks. To go back to that chapter, Jesus was actually on his way to uh, see the daughter of Jairus. We find out who has died. So this miracle is an interruption of, of another miracle, the daughter of Jairus. But Jesus says to this woman, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Jesus wanted her to recognize what had happened. This wasn't some magic trick. It wasn't some magical event. This, in fact, was a personal encounter with Jesus. And he had healed her. And she was to give thanks. And I would argue that the same is true with what we see here at the end of chapter 6. We shouldn't imagine that Jesus wants to speak to this woman, but everybody else, yeah, go ahead and touch me. You know, touch whatever you want and, and you'll be healed. Jesus wants to engage in a conversation. It's one of the things that I find, among many things, somewhat disturbing about many modern uh, claims to faith healing is that usually there is no conversation, that the person is anonymous, don't know anything about this person, simply touch them and they are healed and that's, that's it. And that's not how Jesus did things. Okay, now we come to chapter 7. And here, you know, the chapter divisions are man-made. It's not, you know, Mark didn't say, okay, now here's chapter 7. But it is definitely a shift in direction. Once again, the religious elite, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, called the scribes in the King James Version, have come from Jerusalem to confront Jesus. Um, This is not the first confrontation. The first one was found in chapter 2, when Jesus healed the paralytic, but he said, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, who has authority to forgive sins? And Jesus wants them to know that he did. And then they wanted to know, in a series of challenges and questions, why do you eat with sinners and tax collectors? Why do your disciples not fast? 
why do you allow them to pluck grain on the Sabbath and to eat it? And then finally they set up an ambush of sorts. They bring a man who has a withered hand to the synagogue on the Sabbath to see, in fact, if Jesus will heal him. And Jesus does heal him. And we read from that point on, the Pharisees, religious elite, and the Herodians, a political elite, they are enemies, but they come together. They want to kill Jesus. So not only is he opposed, but now they, in fact, want to put him to death. So when we come to the passage today in chapter 7, we should anticipate a certain amount of hostility. This isn't just like, what do you think about this, Jesus? Uh, There is, in fact, real hostility here. Um, And I would say there's a certain pushback on the part of Jesus as well. Uh, In the past, he has, in fact, given them answers um, that are instructive, and his answer here is as well, but it's rather harsh here. You know, earlier it said, so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. It's not righteous people who need the Messiah. It is, in fact, those who are sinners. And then he says, how can, if you're at a wedding, how can you fast? That's why my disciples don't fast, because the bridegroom is here. And then about the Sabbath, have you never read that David and his companions ate the bread that was meant only for the priest? And then finally at the ambush, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And in each of these, Jesus does make certain claims. Uh, But now we have this direct challenge, a direct confrontation. Follow along, if you would, as I read the first 13 verses here in Mark 7. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come down from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is, a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. So, what's going on here? Things to consider. First of all, you have people who have come down from Jerusalem, actually Jerusalem is in the south, but they've come to Galilee, and they've gathered around Jesus. They are looking, they want to confront him face to face. They are looking for something, you know, that they can attack him over, that they can challenge him over. 
The issue here is ritual cleansing. And we come to an issue that may be difficult for us to understand because we're not first century Jews. We're not that familiar with their practices. So when you read verse number two, you might think that these men are like a bunch of children who've been out playing in the yard and they come in to eat and they haven't washed their hands, that they have unclean hands. They're not very hygienic. Even today, uh, children know that they need to wash their hands before they eat. In the age of the pandemic, we're told to wash our hands with soap and warm water for 20 seconds. And if you don't know how long that is, sing the happy birthday song twice, and that's 20 seconds. So that way your hands are clean. That's not what's happening here. This is not the issue. The Pharisees and teachers of the law were talking about ritual washing. That is to say, you've already washed your hands, and then you are to pour water, water for purification, over your hands. So it's not to get them clean, get rid of dirt. Your hands are already clean. You've already washed your hands. You now pour water over them in a ceremonial way. It makes your hands ceremonially clean. We think that Mark's audience were primarily Gentiles, like us. They might not be familiar with this practice, even though I think every culture in the ancient world had purity laws, what makes somebody clean, what makes somebody unclean. Um, So Mark has to explain, and in a lot of translations, this is put in parenthesis. This is sort of explanation for what this is all about, the tradition of the elders and the ceremonial washing. You may remember the first miracle that Jesus uh, performed was the wedding in Cana. They run out of wine, and he turns water to wine. But the water that he used wasn't just like regular tap water. It was water that was set aside for ceremonial cleansing. That is, you wash your hands, and then you go in, and then you get out this special water, and you pour it on your hands so that you are ceremonially clean. Um, Muslims have a very similar practice of washing before entering a place of worship. And while traveling in Southeast Asia, something that initially puzzled me, if you in the airports, the, the men's room, the bathroom, the restroom, is right next to the room for prayer. And you know, if I'm designing a, an airport, I think I would sort of put a separation there. But the reason is because before the men leave, they must uh, wash their hands, their ears, their mouth, and their feet before they can go in to a place of prayer. Okay, This is the practice that you find among the Jews in the first century. So the challenge, I think, is, yeah, it seems to be about the, the hands, but it's actually about following tradition. Why aren't your disciples doing what the elders told us that we should do? It is worth noting that this practice is not mentioned in the Old Testament with regard to people before they eat. What we do find is that the priests were instructed in Exodus 30 that before they come into the tabernacle, they are to wash Okay, so there is a bronze basin, Moses is instructed, to put it in front of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. They have to do this. 
Whoever, or whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. This is a pretty serious thing. Uh, also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting an offering made to the Lord by fire, they shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for the generations to come. There it is. That's it. But as time went on, people are like, you know, if it's good enough for the priest, maybe it's good enough for us. And they do it for the tabernacle. Well, maybe we'll just do it before we eat. And so something that God intended to be exclusively for the priest now is extended to everyone. And it becomes a tradition of the elders. Okay. By the way, even today, Orthodox Jews uh, have a two-handled cup in which they pour water first over your dominant hand if you're right-handed twice, then over your left hand twice. Hasidic Jews do it three times, you know, one extra one, you know, to make sure that you're ceremonially clean. This is not something that we find in Scripture. This is a human tradition. So the issue here isn't who has clean hands. The issue is who speaks for God. Scripture or the tradition of the elders? Who speaks for God? The Pharisees and teachers of the law insisted that they spoke for God, and they did so based on what the elders in the past, the traditions they had handed down to them. Jesus, on the other hand, speaks with divine authority based on Scripture. He doesn't simply say, hey, I'm the son of man, whatever I say goes. He refers to scripture, and these people do not. And so he does quote from Isaiah 29. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Another question is, who is living a life that honors the God who spoke through scriptures? Certainly not the Pharisees, not the teachers of the law. Because their exterior life, my hands are clean, I did the ceremonial cleansing, does not match the interior life. Their hearts are far from me. But their lips, what they say, everyone can hear, it's one thing, what's in their heart is something quite radically different. And it would be one thing if you would say, well, you know what, the elders have sort of added on. You know, that what God said to Moses, that was good, but they've added something on. What we find is, you know, if you go down that road, you're going to end up not simply adding on, you're going to be pushing aside. And so what the Pharisees did was they set aside the commands of God in favor of the traditions of men. Can you give us an example, Jesus? And he does. One is positive and one is negative. The positive is the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. The negative is anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. The cursing one's parents, I think it's clear enough. You know, we get that. But what does it mean to honor one's parents, one's father and mother? One might take this in the narrow sense of obedience. You know, you need to obey your parents. And then people say, well, wait a minute. When someone gets married, we're told that they leave father and mother. So they don't have to obey them anymore, right? And then Paul said, obey your parents in the Lord. So if your parents tell you something that you don't think is quite right, you don't have to obey them. But that's a very, very narrow interpretation of the word to honor. 
the Ten Commandments are broken up into two groups. The first four commandments deal with our relationship to God. And the last five deal with our relationship with our fellow human beings. It's number five, honor your father and mother, that is the bridge between those two sets of commandments. The first four tell us about the right worship of God. The first four affirm the majesty and the sovereignty of God. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then what comes next is honor your father and mother. Martin Luther wrote, For God has exalted the estate of parents above all others. Indeed, he has appointed to be his representatives on earth. It is through our parents that we are given life. As we read, we are are not manufactured. We are begotten by our parents. Let me read a part of the quote that we read earlier today before communion. Nothing is as ontologically, that is dealing with the nature of being a reality, revealing as our belly button. This is only one of the teachings of the fifth commandment. By noting that we are creatures, creations of mothers and fathers, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, tells us that we have life as gift. We are begotten, not manufactured. Someone even changed our diapers, our first hint of what grace must be like. I have to tell you, the first time I read this, I thought, this is amazing. Who, who could ever think of your diaper being changed as a sign of grace? But that's precisely what it is. And this is what our parents did for us. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, through the tradition of the elders, thought they'd found a loophole. You know, like when you're doing your taxes, you want a good accountant who can find a loophole. Um, You tell your parents, you know, what I was going to use to take care of you, you know, provide a place for you to live or food for you to eat, um, that is to honor you. The money I was going to use to honor you, uh, yeah, I've decided that I'm going to give that as a gift to God. It's going to be Corban, a gift for God. The reality is, this was just a mechanism where you could hold on to your money. You didn't give it to the temple. You didn't give it to the rabbis. You held on to it. But you claimed, in fact, that it was a gift for God. So Jesus said, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. The two questions, who speaks for God? And who is living a life that honors the God who spoke through Scripture? And the answer is, not the Pharisees, not the teachers of the law. Can you imagine, just stop and think a minute, how many parents were abandoned by their sons because the sons through the Pharisees had found a loophole that they didn't actually have to care for their parents anymore. you might as well curse your parents and be put to death. You are to honor your father and your mother. And again, it's the bridge between worshiping God and how we treat other human beings. It's that one commandment, it's a hinge. We are to honor our father and mother. The crowd isn't completely clear on what this means, so he gives a brief uh, explanation. Verses 14, 15, and 16. 
Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. In what is a parable, we'll get to this in verse number 17, Jesus tells the crowd, apparently the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have left, that the exterior is not what makes a person clean. You can pour all the ceremonial washing water on your hands that you want. That doesn't make you clean. Okay. And the failure to do that doesn't make you unclean. Because the Pharisees are like, what's up with your disciples? These guys are unclean. And Jesus is like, no, that's simply not the case. It's what comes out of you that makes a person unclean. What does this mean? What can this mean? Well, to his disciples, he gives an extended explanation. So look again, if you would, in verse number 17. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. So they see it as a parable. Are you so dull, he asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. And saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. So what Jesus had told to the crowd is seen as a parable. It pointed to an important truth. But what is that important truth? Well, Jesus begins to explain, in, again, in a rather harsh way, are you so dull? I mean, this, this seems like a no-brainer. This is something they should understand. The point he's trying to make is it should be self-evident that whatever goes into a person doesn't make that person unclean. It doesn't go to the heart. It goes into the digestive system and ultimately is expelled from the body. When Jesus said this, and again it's in parenthesis, Jesus declared all food clean. This is, this is a remarkable thing because in the Mosaic Law there are certain things you could eat and certain things you could not. Um, you could not eat pork. You could not eat shellfish. Uh, you couldn't eat web-footed birds and their eggs, which I wasn't aware of. You couldn't eat duck, for example, or duck eggs. You couldn't eat rabbits. Okay? And there's a whole list of things you can't eat. There are things that you can eat. Beef, mutton, uh, chicken, turkey, uh, fish that have scales. Israel, as God's people, were to follow these dietary laws. Jesus, who has authority on earth to forgive sins, who has come for the sick and not the healthy, who is Lord of the Sabbath, who commands the waves and the winds, now proclaims all foods clean. That is, God's people can eat whatever they want. Parenthetically, this is something that the disciples didn't understand and they don't get until even after Pentecost and Peter has to have a vision for this to be explained to him that in fact they could eat anything that they wanted. Um, and I think Peter kind of got the lesson, but then he backslid when he went up to Antioch. Um, and then he, he was eating with the Gentiles until the Jews showed up. And then he's like, yeah, I, I, sorry, I can't eat that kind of stuff. Jesus isn't finished, though. 
uh, he's not simply declaring all food clean. He says that what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. And here we have a list, it's not an exhaustive list, but a list of sins that ultimately begin in the heart. Most of them, I would say, perhaps with the exception of evil thoughts, maybe envy or arrogance, those seem to be maybe interior type deals. The rest are actions, things that one may do. Um, but they all begin in the heart. They all begin in the heart. And when Jesus says, are you so dull? I mean, I think this is part of the point. The disciples should have known this. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure, who can understand it? In Genesis 6, before the flood, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. It's where it all starts. It starts in our hearts. Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. Sin begins in the heart. And washing your hands all day long isn't going to take care of that problem. You're dealing with the exterior and you're not dealing, in fact, with the interior. It begins in the heart. I've mentioned this before. But uh, this is something from Francis Schaeffer that he argued, and I agree, that you have ten commandments and one could argue that nine of them are exterior actions. You know, don't kill, don't steal. All these things. It's the last one, the tenth commandment, which is an interior commandment. And that is, do not covet. Coveting is something that begins in the heart. And Schaefer argued that before you break any of the first nine, you break the tenth. That coveting is the cause of all sin. So if you take the Lord's God, the name of the Lord your God in vain, it's because you covet. You, in fact, desire to be able to use his name in any way that you want. When you don't keep the Sabbath holy, you're saying, yeah, I, I want this day because I have other things I want to do. Murder oftentimes is a result of covetousness. Somebody has something that somebody else wants. So that coveting is the beginning point of all sin, certainly of the first nine of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus tells the disciples, it begins in the heart. And that's why he opposes the Pharisees. They've got it all wrong. They think it's, wash your hands, guy. That's, that's what it's all about. And by the way, the same with the pots and plates and, all, and cups. You wash them really good, good detergent, wash them, and then you pour ceremonial water on them t to make sure that they are ritually or ceremonially clean. And Jesus is like, you've missed the point. And in the process, they have set aside God's commandments, the ones that they don't particularly like. I got to take care of mom and dad when they get older. Uh, no, just say it's Corban and then you're relieved from that. From the early days of Jesus' ministry, there was opposition from the religious establishment. And then later on, the political establishment, the Herodians, join in on the fun. At the heart of the conflict is the answer to the question, who speaks for God today? Living a life which honors the God who spoke through Scripture. 
See, it's one thing to say, well, I speak for God. It's another thing to say, I'm living a life that is honoring to the God who spoke through Scripture. Well, in the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the answer is obvious. Okay? The Pharisees, in fact, are not, they claim to speak for God, but they're not living lives that honor God. They have set God's commandments apart. They've set him aside. That's really quite remarkable when you think about it. God speaks to Moses. Moses writes it down. They have it for centuries. And certainly, uh, suddenly at a certain point, they're like, yeah, we don't need to keep that. And they set it aside. And their lives are marked by arrogance, no compassion. They're all about doing the rituals. The opponents of Jesus held to the tradition of the elders, even when it went contrary to what God had said. Okay? What about today? What about today? Who speaks for God and who is living a life that honors the God who spoke through Scripture? And the answer may not be as obvious as it is with Jesus and the Pharisees. A significant part of the problem, in my opinion, is biblical illiteracy. That people don't know what God has said through Scripture. I wouldn't dare to do this because I think the answer would scare me. But if I were to ask a group of Christians, how many of you believe the Bible? Raise your hand. They'd all raise their hand. How many of you believe every word written in Scripture? They'd raise their hand. Then if I were to say, how many of you read the Bible? Heads would drop. How many of you read every word that is found in Scripture? Again. How can we say that we believe something if, in fact, we don't know what has been said? And somebody comes along and they take a verse out of context. And they're like, wow, that's interesting. I've never heard that before. But yeah, that's, there's a reason you haven't heard it before because it's not what God says in Scripture. It's something that has been taken out of its context. There are many today who profess to be God's people, and in fact, they may be God's people. I won't make a judgment. And they claim to believe what Scripture teaches, but they have no idea what Scripture teaches. A part of my calling as your pastor is, in fact, to teach you what the Scriptures say. And how that teaching, what Scripture says, is to shape the way we live our lives. We are to live lives that honor the God who spoke through Scripture. Have human traditions crept in? Yeah. I I think we are blind to our own failings, our own errors. Um, That's that's why it's great to have a church and churches where we can, in fact, sort of check each other to say, yeah, Damon, you know what you said there? I'm not quite sure that's what's being said. But at this point, I'd just be happy if people had read Scripture and have a general understanding of what God said in the Old Testament and the New Testament and would live their lives accordingly. Years ago, after Sunday service, uh, went out to eat with some people who had been at church, and someone asked me at the lunch tables, uh, asked, Damon, if, if we were back in the New Testament times, who would we be? 
if, if somehow we could go back in time and be there, who would we be? And I thought for a bit and I said, the Pharisees. Because in many ways, the Pharisees did know scripture. They'd conveniently set aside. And we claim to know scripture. And the question is, do we live our lives based on scripture? And you're like, well, Damon, that, I, I don't know all of scripture. No, none of us does. Okay. But based on what we know, do we live according to what God has said? The Pharisees did not. They had set up a new, a new way of judging people. You have to keep these rules instead of following God's commandments. I mentioned uh, Stanley Harwas's book. It's on you know the truth about God is seen in the Ten Commandments. I'd like to write a book called The Truth About Man as found in the Ten Commandments, because there we are told what it means to be human, that we worship God because he's the one who's made us. We honor our parents because God gave us life through our parents. And then as we live in community with other human beings, we don't kill, we don't steal, we don't lie. We don't covet. This is what it means to be human. God made us. He knows what's best for us. These are the rules. These are the commandments he gave down. We should follow them and live lives that honor him. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is in our nature since Adam and Eve to want to set you aside. While saying with our lips you know, that you are our Lord. It is not always out of maliciousness. Oftentimes it is out of neglect that we set aside your commandments. And we ask that you would forgive us for this. Open our eyes, Holy Spirit, to see the truth of your word. That you cause men to write this for a very particular reason. It's not to be set aside. It is to be obeyed, and we are to live lives that honor the God of Scripture. I think each of us probably has a set of standards by which we judge whether or not someone is worthy to be a friend or someone we would associate with. And these standards are oftentimes quite harsh. We are told to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbors ourselves. And all the commandments, the law and the prophets, hang on this. By your Spirit, may we think on these things, and not be hearers only of the word, but doers as well. To know that God has spoken in his word, and we are to live lives that honor him. I thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we be conscious, may we be aware of your presence with us as we walk through the world in this coming week. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.